Hey guys, what's up? It's Jordan, and you're listening to the third episode of the Call Out Sessions on the Up the Middle podcast. Sorry for the late content. I know it's been like three weeks since I've done one of these, and tons of things in sports has gone on, uh, you know, with especially with Blues and with the Cardinals and just basketball in general, hockey in general, the world in general. It seems like it's been a lot going on in the last three weeks. Um, so need to apologize for not creating content during that time, but you know, it's been kind of crazy with myself personally with work and also trying to do some major home improvement projects. That's kind of been almost like a second job and um, kind of makes me appreciate uh, kind of these home improvement contractors and the work that they do as it's not, not easy, but um, definitely have no regrets at uh, doing it myself here. Um, so today's show uh, the agenda that we have right here, we're going to talk Blues offseason, where they need to go from here, what's the priorities, what's it supposed to look like here when we go into 2021 and beyond. Um, try to get a Cardinals update uh, as we are 40 games into the season or so. And then I definitely want to talk a little bit about uh, MLB, MVP talk, Cy Young awards, any sort of other awards talk. Try to figure out who's our you know top three or four, who's in the running for these type of reward, uh, awards. So um, with that, uh, sit back and enjoy. All right, so let's just get into it. The Blues lose to the Vancouver Canucks in six games in a series that I would say was a little surprising, a little disappointing, but in my opinion, not really all that concerning for the long-term health of this organization. Um, I mean, it's going to be really difficult for anyone to draw major conclusions on the results of bubbles. Guys weren't coming back in probably the best shape or had some uh Tough hurdles that they had to get over. I know Doug Armstrong had mentioned uh, a couple guys had tested positive for COVID, which had helped or hurt them from being able to really be able to condition. And you could kind of see, you know, a team game like the Blues could definitely suffer in that type of uh, way. Um, Can suffer from, you know, the bubble and suffer from not being together in a long time. I mean, the Blues have been notorious in years past. When they start seasons, they kind of start them relatively slow, like 10 points in 10 games or, you know, 10 points in seven games, like nothing that's like too crazy or too fast. And it takes them a little while to get going. So it's not a whole lot surprising to me, but I know it is a little bit of a disappointing result, especially when we saw how good this team was in the regular season coming off of a Stanley Cup and had looked like they were rolling as they were going into the last two months of the season. And I do think that the results could possibly be different. Probably a much deeper run probably would get a much better matchup if the season had continued the way it was, but you can't do anything about it. So there's no reason for us to really speculate on how they would have done. So the big question is, is where do the blows go from here? Well, this team isn't really in cap hell. It's not in a place of a rebuild. It's not in a place of just standing pat. It's a tip. It's in a place of just tweaking and modifying what you got, doing a little bit of assessing on who's going to be part of this core going forward and just kind of moving this team into the status quo, but growth that we like to see from the blues and what we had seen for, you know, going in from two years ago up to now with some younger guys coming in and some older guys moving out here. So next year isn't dire for the blues to really do anything, but two, but 20, 
2021 and 2022 are going to be the critical years to keep the window open. And I say that because you have guys like Jaden Schwartz coming up as a UFA. You have Robert Thomas that needs to get that will be a restricted free agent, and you would like to kind of sign him long term um, before he becomes a UFA or even hits arbitration. You got Cairo in the same boat, um, and you really need to figure out who's your goalie going forward. I know, with, you know, with Jake Allen leaving. We're, ta- we're handing it over to Jordan Bennington here for another season at least and probably going to have to call up Villa Huso. Um, but we need to really know who's going to be the guy going forward um, like long-term. Will it be Bennington? Will it be Huso? I'm not real sure. I kind of subscribe a little bit to what, you know, Ryan Lambert of, uh, you know, Puck Soup has talked about as, you know, Jordan Bennington is a guy who was – a remedial AHL goalie who had a really great, you know, four months in the NHL before going on the cup run and then had a pretty good season last year. Um, Not fantastic, but he was winning games. His save percentage was respectable. Um, His goals average against was respectable. And the guy was solid throughout the whole entire year. Him and Jake Allen were both very, very solid. It was a great tandem that, you know, probably could have done another deep run. Um, and so, but you also need to start thinking about, you know, what does Tyler Bozak's role on the team going forward as he goes into his th- age 34 season? You know, what does Barbashev look like as a restricted free agent? What do we do with Evan Sanford? And then we really need to understand what's going to happen with Alexander Steen as well. Does he get re-signed or do the Blues decide to let him walk after this year? Or do they do some sort of retirement afterwards? I mean, he is getting, he's probably the oldest veteran that the Blues have. Um, outside of, you know, Jay Bomeister before going down to his injury. Um, the, you know, the, the, that he's like the last bit of that core with the Bacchus Oshi core that we still need to figure out, you know, what his role going forward will be. But the biggest priority for this offseason is obviously Alex Petrangelo. What do the Blues need to do with him and how do they resign him? Um, it's I think it's pretty obvious that a guy who is a Norris Trophy contender every year, an all-star, two-time all-star, um, gets all-star votes every year, is pretty close to being a guy that is a, you know, face of a franchise type. I mean, I when I think of the St. Louis Blues, I think of Alex Petrangelo before any other Blue. I mean, he's a guy that's literally grown up with the organization, and to be honest, has kind of literally grown up with a core base of fans. I know you know, he's going into his age 31 season and at the age of 29 myself, um, it's kind of felt like um, I've kind of grown up as a fan and Alex Petrangelo has just always been there and he's kind of grown with me and he, there's a little bit of that sentimental attachment that I think a lot of people who are Blues fans have with Alex Petrangelo. So I think it is a no-brainer that this guy who has shown in the past that he's been a really great uh, defenseman and has the game that will age really well. He's a puck-moving defenseman, doesn't bang the boards like other guys do, and he's not a high-skill guy like a Brent Burns type that usually those high-skill guys, when it falls, it falls quickly, and sometimes it falls before anybody thinks that it will. Um, So I think his game is more like a Duncan Keith game where it's going to age really well, and you can do it for a long, long time. So the question around this is, what kind of salary is Alex Petrangelo going to command or should be reasonable to command with the circumstances going around the cap staying flat and um, some other suitors possibly being out there? And what 
does the cap situation look like for the Blues, and how can they kind of somewhat find a place where it's common ground? So Alex Petrangelo is age 30 going into his age 31 season and kind of looked on uh, Hockey Reference just to see what his major comps were. Uh, his major comps here that are probably the best ones here are P.K. Subban, Jonathan Carlson, and Victor Hedman. Those are some really great defensemen right there. Say what you want about P.K., you know, some of the numbers that he's had since, you know, going his last couple years in uh, Nashville and then going over to New Jersey. P.K. Subban is still a top-line defenseman and still someone that you would love to have on your team. And would and I definitely know that I do not want to face him as much as possible, especially on a on a good team like Nashville was in those past couple of years. But here's kind of the situation that you see from there. PK Subban, his cap hit is nine million dollars, and he signed that deal at an age 25 season. John Carlson, he has a cap hit of eight million dollars, and that was signed at his age 28 season. And then Victor Hedman is a cap hit of seven point eight million dollars, and that was also signed on his age 28 season. So from what I would think of is if I'm a GM and I'm also thinking, you know, as Alex Petrangelo here is, you probably can't command those type of numbers. You definitely, I don't, like I, I've heard people say $11 million. I've heard some people say $10 million is what he's going to command on the free agent market. But like just the, the comps and the math just doesn't make sense to me. Now we can have PK Subban who has won a Norris trophy. How can he command $9 million five years younger or almost six years younger than what Alex Petrangelo would get, you know, supposedly what Toronto media thinks that he can get $10 million in Toronto with that. It just doesn't make, it doesn't compute to me. I would think that you as a GM would actually want to pay slightly less because you're getting a player at, you know, a couple years more uh, older. So, I would say that probably the more likely number to, that he would probably land on is somewhere between eight and nine. Um, so for the, the, I guess, the basis for this uh, exercise here, we're just going to say eight, just so that I can get a nice round number there. And the cap hit for the St. Louis Blues as of right now, with Jake Allen leaving and then Jacob De La Rose taking actually a slight uh, pay cut uh, in arbitration, right now the, pa- the cap hit is... $76 million, a little bit more than that. So that your projected cap space is about $5 million. So we have like $3 million, $3.5 million, maybe $4 million if you want to be conservative, trying to figure out how can we get to a number that's around $8.5 million. So I did a little bit of crunching the numbers, and there's definitely more uh, there's definitely more efficient moves to do. Uh, that can get the job done. You know, you could trade Tyler Bozak, his $5 million hit. It would really help the Blues. And his declining po- point total the last couple of years. But he's still a guy that is really good on the faceoff. Pretty good um, puck mover. Really solid defenseman on the third line. Can play up on the second line if you need him in a pinch. Um, can also play down on the fourth line if you really needed it to or if you're really deep. But really that third line centerman. $5 million cap hit's about right. Um Probably wouldn't want to assign him much longer at that cap uh, hit going into his 35 and 36 age season. But that's something that has been thrown out there a little bit with fan It had written an article about it. And they've also thought about trading Oscar Sundquist. His is a uh, $2.7 million hit, which is pricey for a bottom six forward um, who's not a great, uh, you know, like a center or anything like that. But he is one of those guys that 
is kind of an energy guy on the fourth line. He bangs the body. He does have some skill where he can create shots and move the puck around and get assists and really provide that great, um, you know, power, not power play, but the penalty kill there. And it would be pretty, it would, it would make sense to move him, but I don't know if Army would be able to do that or if he would have the appetite to do that. Again, as Sunquist is much younger, um, but it would, moving him would open the door for um, Kairou and even for Clem Costin going forward. Um, but I'm not sure if Army is really into that. So something that I've thought about here is what if we started moving some older guys? And if we, it's going to require more transactions, but the math would work out here. So they've already done two of them that I thought that, that would make sense. One would be the trade Jake Allen. Jake Allen was a 4.4 million cap hit. Got rid of him, sending him over to Montreal. Got some draft picks back. Great move. Necessary move. Thank you, Jake Allen. You are great. I was a huge Jake Allen fan while he was here. I think it was a lot of his struggles was a product of some of the defenses that we had with uh, Hitchcock and Yo and some of the lack of support that he would have. Um, so, But he, I think he'll do great behind Carey Price. That'll be a really great tandem up there in Montreal. Um going to be a really good opportunity montreal might be a team that is probably going to be in a lot of like two one games going forward with gary price and uh, jake allen so but that will be really great that was a great move by army to do and then they also did the jacob delarose uh arbitration and i was thinking that they were going to probably get him at one million dollars but they ended up actually getting him at seven seven hundred thousand dollars which is great that is a pay cut for him that's $200,000 that they save in the salary cap, which isn't a ton. It's not a lot. It's not a break deal breaker to sign a player or not, but every little bit ha- uh, helps whenever you're a team that needs to bridge you know, $3 million in cap. Some other things that they need to do, they need to get uh, Dunn onto a bridge contract because they need to have him going forward. I am still very high on Vince Dunn. He's still very young. His, you know, he's 23 going into his 24-age season. He's a restricted free agent this year. And but they really need to get some sort of bridge done. Either, you know, I said one million dollars this year, that would be an increase for him, and then get him into a bridge for the next year when you have a little bit more flexibility with some UFAs leaving, like Alexander Steen and Tyler Bozak possibly, or you have some other guys that you can, you know, let go, like a Jacob De La Rose or um you know, like a Carl Gunnarsson's going to leave, that kind of stuff. You can let some of those guys go. Um, but you need to do that bridge deal with Dunn uh, this season, in my opinion. You'll have Huso coming up as a backup. He's, his cap hit is $750,000. Um, one of the things that I think that they should really do is they should try to find a suitor for Carl Gunnarsson, get some sort of salary dump or get some sort of – they need the cap relief. So can they get a couple draft can they get a draft pick or one or a couple low round ones or maybe one mid round for them? That would save you 175 uh or 1.75 million dollars there. And he does have a modified no trade, but it's only five teams that he can't uh that he submits for that no trade clause, which there's you know 32 teams in this league. You can find probably a home for Carl Gunnarsson that would make sense for both sides. You find you can find a team that will want to have Carl Gunnarsson on their team going forward, especially if they can get like a, a higher draft pick and you can get something back. Because really, you need the asset that you need there is uh, cap space. And then also, you need to let Troy Brower walk. Don't resign him. Um, and you need and this is something that we don't talk about much, 
Um, with one year left on Alexander Steen's deal, I am not super opposed to trying to figure out either to move Alexander Steen in a trade or possibly even a buyout. People don't talk about buyouts enough to do a buyout and resign or a buyout, which I don't know if you can actually do that, but if you but a buyout and just using that instead of a trade to get rid of larger contracts. His cap hit for next year is 5.75 million dollars next year. Okay, 5,750,000 dollars next year. If you were to buy out Steen for the, on that last year, his cap hit for this year would be $2.3 million, and then you'd be on the hook for $1.7 million in 2021. What this would do is this would create $8.65 million in cap space, which should be more than enough to realistically for a market price on Alex Petrangelo be able to sign him. I really subscribe, you know, Elliot Freeman had talked about that, you know, Alex Petrangelo would like to stay, um, that he's, you know, his family is here, you know, Toronto media wants to always talk about how, you know, oh, he grew up in Ontario outside of Toronto, he'll want to come back, he'll want to come back. Let's be honest here, Alex Petrangelo hasn't been, you know, spending most of his time in Toronto since he was like 18 years old, like, He's been with the St. Louis Blues since then. I mean, he started in his age 19 season. He's been with the St. Louis Blues during that whole entire time. The guy spent more than eight months of his time every year being on the road, either in St. Louis or on the road. So I don't know about you guys, but, like, I'm not looking at my hometown, and I haven't spent a whole lot of time there since moving away from my hometown that I would ever really say, oh, I'm going to take a hometown discount to go there. Like, I just, I think we overvalue hometown discounts when it comes to where someone grows up in some of these situations, especially when in hockey, when you have someone who is like a top prospect that had come up really or early in the organization, you know, met his wife in this area, meets, you know, basically become a face of a franchise, a part of a per, of you be a face of a franchise person, for this organization, like, I think we just put, I think media in the national standpoint always puts a little more stock into the hometown discount than what is really there. Like, if anything, St. Louis would get the hometown discount, not Toronto. But anyway, that creates $8.65 million worth of cap space. I'm thinking between 8 and 8.5, you can get stuff done. Um, you can always use a little bit of performance bonuses to get around the, the cap to kind of make up some small cap, uh, gaps in, in negotiations there. You know, if it's like half a million dollars off or a million dollars off, you can try to do some performance-based incentives and you can make them whatever you want. I mean, it, it's definitely doable and possible with those kinds of moves. Yes, you could move Tyler Bozak and get there a lot more efficiently. Yes, you can move Oscar Sundquist and get there more efficiently. But I really think that that would sacrifice depth that you really do need. And those guys, you know, they don't show up in the stat sheet, but they definitely do the job really well. They move the puck really well. And the, they're, the sum of the parts is great, or the sum of the whole is better than the, than the parts, right? So, I mean, if you had Tyler Bozak and Oscar Sundquist on any other team, they're probably not as valuable as they are on this team. 
So I think it's definitely possible to have Alex Prince or Angelo come back. There's definitely lots of moves that Armstrong could do, lots of them that you wouldn't necessarily uh, really can criticize too much. And it's I think it's going to be it's doable and it's going to be tough um, considering that you also have to take into account of the uh, expansion draft coming up and you can only take three defensemen in that sort of uh, draft there, and then you got to figure out will it be Justin Folk or Colton Pareko or Alex or Vince Dunn, and then if you resign Alex Petrangelo, you know which three of the four do you do you keep or protect in that in that standpoint? Which, as of right now, here what I would do if I have Petrangelo and I've been able to resign him for you know eight million dollars or whatever, I would keep Petrangelo. Preco and Dunn. Those would be the three that I protect. And Justin Falk probably wouldn't get taken by Seattle in the expansion draft just because $6.5 million is quite a bit to take on with a 28-year-old defenseman with a new franchise. But if they take him, that's fine with me. But if they don't take him, then I think you're fine as well, and they can take somebody else. I think that's probably the move to make. If If I was Doug Armstrong, that's what I would do. But he gets paid the big bucks, and I'm just the guy who sits in a 9 by 12 room uh, talking into a microphone. So let's get into the baseball things. The Cardinals are 21-22 and 22 as of uh, September 16th, which puts them five games off of the division lead and in a playoff spot, which doesn't really mean a whole lot this year with almost every major league team making the playoffs. But the 21-22 and 22 record is really indicative to what this team is. So let's do – let's – dig into it a little bit here and let's start with the offense. The offense is been kind of what we thought it'd be not great outside of Paul DeYoung and Paul Goldschmidt. We haven't really had the consistency from some of the role players that we were expecting to get some of those outside of those guys. You can argue Tommy Edmond. You can even argue the occasional Brad Miller explosion. Their offense has just been kind of underwhelming while they are fifth and on base percentage, which is great. Meaning they're getting walks and when they do hit the ball, they do get on base but they're 12th in slugging in NL, which is bad. Um, they're 10th in OPS, which is bad, um, which in the OPS plus of 97, which is not good. And their hard hit ball rate is 10th in NL. And they have the highest soft hit rate in the league, which means they're not driving the ball with hardly any power. It, when they do hit the ball, it's a single. And it is just not great. You can even... You know, if you wanted to get an advanced metrics, you could even talk about the uh, being 13th in isolated power metric or even 8th in weighted run creation at 100, which really means that they're average across the league. The offense just isn't there for the Cardinals, which definitely, like, it leads to a lot of these games when the Cardinals lose, they kind of lose badly. They lose by four runs. They lose by five runs. They lose by six runs. They lose by a lot when they do lose. If the pitching isn't elite like it is, which we'll get to in a minute, the offense just can't make up the difference or help bail their guys out. If our starters aren't great and our bullpen doesn't have a chance, then it's not going to, uh, then the Cardinals are just not going to be able to come back from those. So yeah, the pitching has been great. Third in ERA and third in the ERA plus of 110, 10% better than average, which is pretty good they're sixth and fifth uh they're fourth and whip 
They're uh, fourth in the walk rates per nine. Um, they have a fourth. They're fourth in the left on base percentage, which means when they do walk people or they do give gut runners on base, they tend to leave them on, which is really really good. And what you want, especially out of a bullpen, um, which the bullpen is definitely carrying that number. And they're just in the upper half and third in almost all percentage uh, pitching points. I mean, you want to look at. You know, hardball rates against and uh, softball uh, hit rates against are in the top third, top half in most of these things. So this is not atypical of what a Cardinals team is. We've seen it year after year. We saw it last year, which it worked out great for us with good circumstances of Cubs having a down year, division wide open, Brewers not capitalizing on some of the game, uh, some of the opportunities that they had. Uh, but the Cardinals, this formula that they had that that they've had. I can see why Cardinals fans are getting really frustrated with this team because more times than not, when you have one part of the game that's really, really elite and then one part of the game which is really unelite, which I don't even know if that's a word, but basically in the bottom half, when you have those two, you're not go- you're going to have a team that just sits around 500 most times. Most of the time, those two things are going to cancel out and you're going to win some games and you're going to lose some games and they're going to come out to be about even. The only way that this Cardinals team can go from being a fine borderline playoff team that could make noise in a round, maybe get to the set, maybe uh, get to the third round, or get to you know an AL an NLCS like last year, is they got to get to the upper upper half of the offense. Right now, they're in like the lower third in NL. They're probably in the lower third of the ma- of the major leagues. They need to get to where they either in the middle or just above the middle, and then their pitching's got to stay. You know, not it doesn't have to be elite, elite, but it does need to be in the top third. And right now, they just don't have that. They have the top third on one side, and then the bottom third on the other, which evens out to be about five hundred. And that's just roster construction. You know, you can only Schilt can only manage so much. Um, you can only get so much defense from your your fielders. You can only get so much great pitching. It's really the roster construction from an offensive standpoint. And it's something that, you know, Mosellock and Gersh has been doing for the last couple of years is that they've been betting on their own prospects. They've been betting on that their pitching is going to be good enough to carry them through and that they're going to find somebody within the margins to come out. That I don't think is going to be able to work going forward. The Cardinals need to change how this roster is constructed from an offensive standpoint with position players. They need to do that for next season. This season, whatever happens, happens. It's a wash. It's just another way to put get some data points to kind of try to figure out what to do for the next season. 60 games, it's not big enough to get to hold it on its own, but it is enough to kind of put, put it into next season and just be able to combine la- the last season 2019 and 2020 and try to figure out what kind of roster what kind of offensive roster you're going to have here so cardinals need to make moves um i've been calling for trading for nolan arenado for a long time i would say they need to go all in on on some free agents they really need to go to pursue some guys uh pretty aggressively because if they don't and they're not able to keep some of the pitching you know flaherty's not been taking deals or extensions um, Wainwright's only getting older. You don't know what you have in Michaelis right now. Carlos Martinez is hit and miss. Ponce de Leon is hit and miss. Even though these guys, even though this team, you know, pitching staff is mostly elite, how much longer are they going to be elite? That's the question. So I think the offensive side of 
the team needs to get better and needs to get better much, much quickly. Uh, going into awards talk here, I know a lot of people don't like awards talk, um, and it's kind of amazing that it is uh, that time of year already after 40 games, but I think it's definitely appropriate time to kind of talk about it. And I'm going to hit the big four here. And I'll start with the AL Cy Young because I have the least to talk about because it's pretty much one guy and everybody else. It's Shane Bieber. Shane Bieber is first or like top three in a lot of different stats. Um, so it's pretty much his to lose. I, with honestly, with forty games already played, or almost fifty games for a lot of a lot of teams, I don't really see how he can lose it. I mean, he's first in WAR, first in ERA, first in strikeouts per nine innings, first in strikeouts, first in fifth. I mean, he's just doing it on all his own for Cleveland, and it's just that's. He's the Cy Young winner for the AL. Some people could make an argument for like Ryu or uh, maybe some other pitchers out there in AL, but really it's like Shane Bieber and that's it. Um, AL MVP is a lot closer than I thought it would be uh, when starting the season here, and there's a you know there's a variety of factors to make it close, but in my opinion, it's basically down to four guys, um, really three, but there is a fourth dark horse that would make a lot of sense. I think it's Trout, Abreu, Cruz, and Voigt. We'll start with Voigt since he is what I would consider the dark horse here. Voigt's a really good story. You know, trade from the Cardinals, um, goes over to the Yankees, doesn't play a whole lot, and then this year he's starting to play a lot more. Um, he's first in the major leagues in uh, home runs, and I'm going to go just in major leagues when I talk, say about rankings for this for the time being. Um just so that we're being clear, I'm not talking about just AL. I'm talking about the whole major leagues here. So Voight is first in home runs, sixth in slugging, fourth in RBI. But really outside of the top 10 in pretty much every other category. And this is all through 44 games. Um, but I think there's a lot of talk because he's plays for the New York Yankees. It's a lot of home runs. Getting some good numbers with RBIs. Good counting numbers. His batting average is pretty decent. But the guy just doesn't get on base enough and doesn't slug high enough to really get him above the other three guys. I think he's a dark horse. If he hit, you know, if he leads the the league in, you know, home runs by like four or five, you know, in the last ten games here or so, and then gets up into the top five in slugging, then I could probably get entertain the idea a little bit more. Uh, Nelson Cruz is what I would consider probably third on this list here. Um, he's having a fantastic year. The only knock against him is that he's a DH, so all he does is hit, doesn't do any fielding or anything. And I think that matters. I really think that DHs really have to have an outstanding season. Like Cabrera had a couple of years ago, a couple of years ago being almost eight now, where he got the triple crown. You have to have some sort of season like that. And Nelson Cruz is getting pretty close. He's second in, in majors in home runs, third in OPS, second in adjusted OPS plus, uh, third in slugging. Um, and he's done this in 47 games. So he's got a, he's been there pretty much the whole entire time. Plays at a ballpark or in a division where ballparks aren't the most hitter friendly. Uh, so it's definitely impressive to see those numbers. And I think, you know, there's definitely a case that if you wanted to vote him first, I would not, you know, say you're stupid or anything like that. You got some arguments there for, I mean, being second, being, you know, top two, top three, and a lot of those things are really great. But you do have to remember it's also just a DH, no defensive, uh, prowess to speak of at all um but i think second the, the next two guys obviously with trout and abreu they do play defense and that, i think that adds a lot to their value abreu i would put you know him as him and trout are definitely i think the front runners with 1a 1b 
Abreu has a lot more counting stats than what Tim Anderson has, which I know a lot of White Sox fans would say Tim Anderson should get should be an MVP. You know, has a high batting average, things like that. But batting average to me just doesn't matter a whole lot. But when you're fourth in home runs, first in RBIs, ninth in slugging percentage, which is about the only knock against him, and second in WAR in 48 games. Yeah, it's a pretty good season, and he also plays, you know, first base. Plays a pretty good first base. He's been doing it the whole entire time. His batting average is relatively high compared to some of his peers, and the guy is the guy is really good. Uh, Jose Abreu is definitely deserving. If you wanted to put him first, I wouldn't knock you at all. And then Trout, perennial. He's kind of almost to like the LeBron stage right now, where people are really looking for reasons to not make him an MVP rather than making him an MVP. But the case for Trout is typical, and he's actually got the lowest amount of games, um, 44 as well with Voight, um, out, with, out of the four guys here. So he's got, uh, he's second in OPS, fourth in slugging, second in home runs, which is kind of amazing. We sometimes forget that Mike Trout's a really great home run hitter, um, and he does everything else really great, like on base and then hit extra bases as well. But really, he's a really great home run hitter in a very unfriendly ballpark, which definitely leads to his third being third in adjusted OPS plus, and he's uh, third in uh, runs created too, which is no small feat for a guy who's usually batting third. Um, usually you see those guys batting first or second get those high numbers. It's hard to really, it's hard, you hardly ever see someone that's third, uh, batting third in the order get that many runs created there. So I think, in my opinion, it's between Trout, Abreu, Cruz, with Voight being kind of your fourth guy out there who's a really nice story. Voight will probably win, like, the Hank Aaron Award. Definitely will get the, definitely should get the Silver Slugger, in my opinion, for first baseman. Um, but I think, really, Trout, Abreu, and Cruz are really the three that you should look out for. And I think it'll be really interesting. If I had my money, I'd probably put it on Trout. Um, but I, this would be one of the few seasons that I would not be super upset if it was somebody else out, outside of him. But really great season by all four of those guys. NL MVP, when I first was thinking about, you know, who would probably be on top of the list, I thought it would be really close. I thought it would be a lot closer uh, than the AL. But when I crunched numbers or looked at, you know, just baseball reference, AL actually kind of, you could twist the numbers and twist the narratives around um, to make it fit. But really, the NL MVP comes down to three guys. But I really think there is one that gets cut in a way. So, um, third on the, third on my list is I would have Fernando Tatis Jr. Great story. He's on a really good team. He's the best player on a good team here, a fun team. Um, he's fourth in home runs, fourth in runs created, uh, fifth in RBI, and first in runs, which is great. And he has played all game, all every game. So um, that it means something to me is when you can play almost every game, even in a short season. It means something, and you can say that he's, you know, fourth in war. That's pretty good, too. Um, he's definitely deserving of getting some votes and some nominations, but I think he's a distant third um, to Mookie Betts being second, in my opinion, who's first in war, fourth in home runs, and sixth in runs created. Um, he definitely has the narrative of best player on the best team, you know, quote-unquote, if you want to say the Dodgers are the best team. Uh, he's got that narrative going for, for him and, you know, being first in war, it's hard to argue against it. Uh, war, I hold it, I hold it pretty heavily when I look at, uh, MVPs and Cy Youngs and things like that, but it's not the end all be all considering, you know, there's some guys, uh, that they're just not war friendly in the way that they play the game. 
And Freddie Freeman is who I think is far and away the best player in the NL this year. And I know it's going to sound really strange, but quietly playing on a really good Atlanta team, he's second in OPS. He's first in on-base percentage. He's second in RBI. He is first in adjusted OPS plus, and he's also first in runs created. Or, yeah, runs created. And that's kind of amazing to think of with Freddie Freeman. You really don't think of him as a guy that, you know, is able to create runs on the base path or be able to, you know, you always know him as like a guy who can drive you in, drive him in. Um, but you kind of sometimes forget about him because he doesn't have the big home run numbers compared to like an Abreu or a Trout or a Void or a Cruz or a Tatis or, a, or yeah, or a Tatis. And Freddie Freeman just chugs along by hitting doubles and gappers and really just spraying the ball all over the place as a pure hitter. Um, I really think it's head and shoulders, Freddie Freeman over Betts and Tatis. I know we can talk about the war again, but it's really just, it's Freddie Freeman because he's like a top two in so many categories compared to those other guys. Um, and then the NL Cy Young, uh, it's really down to three in no particular order. I think, I think Fareed is probably third on my list here. You know, he's had a really great season. He's first in war for pitchers. Um, he's third in ERA. But those are really the only two categories where he's, like, in the top five. Which, I mean, first in war for a Cy Young is re- or for a pitcher is really, really good. Um, considering it's, like, 2.9, which is outstanding for 60 games for a starting pitcher that only pitches every five days. Um, but I think it really comes down between DeGrom and I think Trevor Brow- uh, Bauer should get serious consideration for the Cy Young this year. DeGrom is second in whip, second in strikeouts, first in ERA, and fifth in war overall. Um, and then Trevor Bauer is first in whip, first in strikeouts, second in ERA, and seventh in war, which, again, war for pitchers is kind of a funky thing as long as I think I think if, if you're as long as you're in like the top 10, or like the top eight in pitchers and wars for pitchers, you're probably should be in the running for a Cy Young if you have all these other stats like strikeouts, whips, fielding and pitching pitch or fielding independent pitching, things like that. But really, I think it's between Degrom and Bauer, and probably if I had to vote right now, I'd probably go probably go Degrom just because he's done it before. He's got a little bit of that pedigree. I'd like giving awards to guys who've won it in the past. Um, if it's really a toss up, but I think Bauer, I think Bauer would get some serious consideration. And if he won the Cy Young, I wouldn't be upset by that either. So that's all I got for the baseball stuff. I think, uh, it'll be really interesting to see how the playoffs come out. The format is intriguing. The bubbles are intriguing. Um, I find it kind of funny that they're going to be putting, uh, the NL teams in AL ballparks and AL teams in NL ballparks. I would have thought it'd been flip flop, but, and I mean, that's like a real small, thing that kind of jarbles my ADHD brain. But, uh, yeah, it's just kind of strange. And then have Arlington, Texas uh, have the World Series will be kind of interesting too. Um, I hope that baseball doesn't stay with this format. I really liked what they had going for them, which was having the fifth team uh, and the fourth team play for that wild card spot uh, in both leagues. I think that was probably the best. I really don't want to see them go out to six or even eight teams per uh, league unless the only time I would really consider that to be something that baseball could do is if they were to expand to like 32 teams and 
or even 33 or 34. Like, I think you got to have more teams before you can move out to having eight in each uh, league. So that's what all I got for today. Thanks for uh, listening to my ramblings, and I will talk to you later. Thanks. Bye.